0: Oh, you're listening to the Ten by Nine podcast. As you know, Ten by Nine has moved to Zoom until we can return to the black box. And one of the unexpected delights of going online is the international audience and storytellers who've joined us. We have two stories in this podcast for you, from East and West. One was told from Indiana, and the other from actual India. Plus, we'll have a little bit of bonus material from our recent fundraiser evening. And in case you're wondering, I'm Paul Dorn, and in 2011, Podrigo Tuma and I started 10x9 in Belfast. It's very simple, nine people, with up to ten minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. You can find all our events and all the things you need to know about us and more at our website, 10x9.com. But here's our first story, and it comes from Darren Chittick in Indianapolis
1: in the USA. It was October 21st, and the theme was The Last Time. In my early 20s, I saw an attractive man at a gay bar and so, as I generally would do, I immediately left. About a block away from the bar, I thought to myself, this is why you never meet anyone. You're a coward. About another block down the street, I parked the car and walked the blocks back to the bar, sat down next to the rather attractive man and said hello. About the same time, he passed a note on a piece of paper across me to the woman on the other side of me, which I thought was quite curious until I realized that he was deaf. This is what an act of random bravery will get you, I decided. We ended up spending about six hours together that evening and became very good friends. It had been the first time that he'd ever been in a gay bar and he was the first deaf friend that I ever had. And so we would often joke that he taught me American Sign Language and I taught him how to be gay, but none of the fun parts. That act of random bravery eventually led me to becoming an American Sign Language interpreter. And shortly into that career, I began working with a young deaf-blind girl who was in kindergarten at the Indiana School for the Blind. I worked with her as a DeafBlind Support Service Provider, as we are known professionally, and her name was Kylie. I worked with her for a number of years, and because her mother already knew sign language when Kylie was born, her first language was tactile sign language. And so I would hold her hands and sign to her, and she would sign back to me, and and that's how she communicated. I worked with her in the classroom from about 8 in the morning until 3.30 or so in the afternoon. And then for a time, I also did respite work with her, meaning that she stayed with me for a couple to several hours in the evening after school. She was a joy. She was exhausting. She had enough vision to escape any room that she found herself in and she had absolutely no fear. She would be out the door before anyone noticed and sometimes would make it all the way across campus and into another building before we would catch up with her. It was harrowing work and the respite hours were sometimes the most harrowing. On one particular afternoon, extra tired from the day, I decided to stop for a coffee and at the counter asked her what she would like, giving her a few options. And she indicated she would like some apple juice and a candy. And so we got those items and made our way to a full-sized overstuffed couch. And she did the strangest thing I had ever seen her do. She reclined on the couch with her head on the arm, drank her juice, ate her candy, and lay there with her legs crossed at the ankle on my lap. This had never happened. I decided that we might in fact just stay there on this couch until they closed if she would remain still like this for that much time. So unique was this moment that when her mom entered and saw the scene, she burst into tears asking, how did I make this happen? And I assured her I had done nothing and that we would never question it and that we would enjoy it as long as it would last. And so that became our daily habit after school. The calm that we experienced on that first night did not continue as I might've hoped, but it was a good space for us. Kylie was very interested in people and because her vision was so limited, she would often climb up into the laps of strangers so that she could see their faces. She also happened to love tattoos, which I imagine stemmed from the fact that she could see the contrast of ink on skin quite clearly. And so she would spend much time exploring them if given the chance. Her best friend at the coffee shop quickly became a man who had flames tattooed at both of his arms, was always working on a laptop while wearing large headphones and who was called Diablo, not his given name. He was contrary to what the tattoos and chosen name might imply, incredibly patient and gentle, and he liked Kylie just as much as she liked him. It turns out that the computer work he was doing was post-production mixing of music. He was both a musician and a producer. And as it turned out, he and I became friends right alongside his developing friendship with Kylie. His girlfriend was somehow a distant cousin of my then sister-in-law, It's a Small World. As with all things, both that job and the friendship ended. I didn't see Diablo for many years until one afternoon I walked. In, I spotted him walking down the hallway of an office building. He was wearing nothing but a black satin robe with a red dragon on the chest and a pair of fluffy slippers. The office building happened to also house an art school. I was interpreting classes there and he was working as a model for a life drawing class. It was always easier to get him out of his clothes than it was to keep him in them, so this was no surprise to anyone that that he had made this choice. We reconnected, and we saw each other a couple of times over the following months, and then nothing much came of it. You know how that goes. Then one morning I awoke to find a series of text messages from him left in the wee hours of the night. His girlfriend had broken up with him and he just didn't know what he was going to do and and could we get together the next day of course of course and so we made plans for the for that afternoon when i would be done with work and with plans i already had for drinks with a a teacher from the same art school where i'd met him at four o'clock in the afternoon i was quite buzzed from one and a half mojitos i am a lightweight I was only a block from where he was having dinner with a friend of his. Could I meet them at the restaurant? Sure. I thought it was odd that he was just having a casual dinner with a friend because he had been so distraught just a few hours before, but time heals all wounds, it seemed. The friend was someone from his mixed martial arts gym, had on a tank top, very impressive biceps, and was named Frank. Still tipsy, I leaned over to Diablo and said in a louder than intended voice, Kevin has really nice arms Diablo responded yes Frank does have really nice arms at some point during dinner straight mixed martial artist big-armed Frank revealed that he was actually gay mixed martial artist big-armed Frank well then I'd been flirting with an actual gay man I found attractive what a time to be alive The three of us retired to Diablo's house laced about on the patio and then a young woman Frank and I had never met nor heard of showed up and took Diablo with her. Time had evidently healed the wounds to a greater degree than I had earlier imagined. Frank and I went out went inside rather because we were enjoying each other's company. I learned that he had in fact, heard a lot about me and knew that he was being introduced to someone. He learned that I knew nothing of him and was mostly surprised at every turn. Then he got out a huge binder of DVDs that he had brought with him and told me how much he loves Dr. Who. And did I also love Dr. Who? And I said, oh, yes, I love Dr. Who. And so we spent the evening with Chris Eccleston's doctor. And that was the last time in all the 11 years that I've known my husband that I lied to him. Oh, thanks so much, Darren. Best wishes to
0: you and your husband, whatever you're calling him. And if you want to see Darren tell that story, it's on our YouTube channel along with all our previous Zoom events. Also, if you want to keep up with all things 10 by 9 wherever you are in the world, follow our social media feeds. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to tell a story at 10x9, go along to the guidelines page on our website and get in touch. We are always looking for storytellers. Now, here's another story from that October evening. Let's go east and to Mumbai in India. Here's first timer, Devangana Mishri.
2: So a long, long, long time ago, I was 20. I worked at the UNICEF office in New Delhi as one of the many internships I found myself bored in during my year between studying my undergrad degree and going to study autism in New York at Columbia. My parents are paying a lot of money for this master's degree I was going to get at Columbia, especially if you factored in the Indian rupees to the US dollar jump we had to make. To me, this meant I had to hustle my way by earning some money, doing some odd jobs, rid myself of the self-created burden of asking my parents for too much. The cool part about UNICEF was they held a donation drive every December around Christmas. I stood at this Christmas market drive, manning a table with a few last people trickling in towards the end. When it was time to shut down, there was still left a pair of shiny red gold shoes with a Nike swoosh on them. When no one was looking, I snuck them in my bag, took them home. My brother laughed at me. These are should football shoes, you idiot. Cleats with spokes in their soles to get a better grip of the pitch. You can't just walk in them on streets. People think you're weird. I asked him how do you spell cleats, I heard C-L-E-A-T-S, I added that to my list of things to pack in my New York bag and off they were to the Big Apple with me. My second apartment in New York was in Harlem, I hadn't read anything about black history by now to understand the fear in my American family's eyes at the mention of me living in Harlem. I saw an apprehension in them when I found the perfect one bedroom apartment of Frederick Douglass on 111th and East Harlem. Once the locks were double checked by my family and the neighbors were well scrutinized, I was allowed to move into my new flat. At a 15 minute walk to the teacher's college campus of Columbia University, which I, as if I was pole vaulting, made in my Nike red pleats with the golden swoosh. Besides the spokes at the bottom, they were also a size too big, so I wore my thick socks to ensure the shoes don't slip off. The teenagers, rather tall ones who played on my st- street in Harlem, often shouted out, Lady, whose throat are you gonna pierce with those cleats of yours? I wasn't sure what they would be, what would be an appropriate response to that question, so I smiled and very matter-of-factly replied, Nobody's. I work four jobs and study a full-time course. The only throat I wanna pierce right now is my own. They throw the ball at me. I wasn't sure if they were teasing me, flirting with me or they wanted me to catch it. I went for the least conflict-provoking response by kicking the ball back at them each time I found it aimed at me. One time I smiled and asked a tall boy from this Harlem gang, will you teach me how to play football? He kneeled as if to tie his shoelaces, looked into my eyes Slowly licked his lips and under his breath whispered, what would you like to teach me in return if I taught you how to play football? Out of a possible naivety or maybe just fear, I quickly spat out. I'm a teacher. I work with kids with autism. I have found myself four jobs around here. I could help you with high school stuff or help you figure jobs if you're looking to earn some more money on the side. His friends laughed. They threw their ball at him this time. He blushed. He tied my shoelaces instead, really tight. He extended his arms from below in my direction, urging me to give him a high five. Welcome to Harlem lady. Sorry about my cat. Um, Welcome to Harlem lady. Will you teach me English literature, math, basically just anything. I hate school. So anything I can do to pass, get out of this motherfucking place. I said, I'm the Wagner, by the way, you can call me D. All, all of you, I said, as I peeked behind the tall boy and his friends. I don't know much about high school, you guys. Uh, I don't know much about New York, but sure, I can try and help you in whatever way I can. This group of boys, they must be 15 or 16 years of the oldest, looked a lot older than Indian men at that age. They gave me double high fives, chanted, D, 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 like a football chant or something. And I had my first set of real friends in Harlem. I worked at a rich school nearby for eight months before this. Uh, While I was there, I often snuck muffins, bagels, baguettes, whatever I could get in my bag from the breakfast buffet. I'd carry them back to my flat for my roommate and some for my Harlem crew who hung around Frederick Douglass around the same time each night. I told these boys about India, my family. I showed them pictures from my hometown in Jaipur. They asked me if we moved around town on elephants or horses. How did the people get around there? I showed them pictures of my home, of the busy streets with every car you could possibly imagine. I showed them pictures of my friends who looked a lot like their friends. They shared with me empanadas. They taught me how to dig into chicken wings. Lick your fingers like a lady, they said. The tall boy would smile and tell me when we sat in the stairway to my building, you'd make a cool girl." (laughs) New York takes you by the wings, not by the ones that you heat with hot sauce, but the real kind. New York makes you fly, cuts your wings off without a warning, and then just watches you fall. I was soon going to go, I was soon going to parties at the Ganza boot, getting invited to Hotel Oh for Galas, cozying up in little wine bars, sipping on dirty martinis made the signature Manhattan way, of course. I was wrapping my body in delicate chiffon dresses underneath my Queen Sunday Fleet Market's trench coat. I was throwing lavish fondue parties at home, wearing knee-length fake leather boots instead of my red cleats with a golden swoosh. In the madness and magic of New York, one night after a big quarrel at a bar where I drunkenly flirted with one too many men, kissed another one, I walked out to text my roommate about the mess I'd landed myself in. I sat on the stairway, tucked by the Fat Baby bar near up in the Lower East Side. I barely remember making my way up the stairs from Fat Baby. I pulled out my phone. I think I typed a text. as sitting on the stairway. I just have a faint recollection of all of this. The next thing I knew, I woke up in a bed under a sharp spotlight with a group of six people who I think were doctors. They were examining me with scalpels and gloves, asking me where I was. I said, Jaipur? They asked me, why was I in Jaipur? I said, I live with my grandparents in Jaipur. I closed my eyes. I put my head in my grandmom's lap. I lovingly called her Amma a few times. I said, Amma, I'm finally home. I'm here with you. And I slept a really long sleep. After a week in the neurological ICU, a few days recovering from my broken cheekbone, a broken hand, a fractured knee, a hemorrhage in my brain, a few friends and the nurses and doctors there, a new crush on the new resident at St. Luke's hospital. I was released on account of being a medical miracle. I'd survived. I wore my big red sunglasses, pretended to be a pirate for a day or two while tripping on morphine before I broke down. This was a lot. My parents kind of made it all the way to New York when this happened, but while I was in the hospital, my family of 30 who lived in New Jersey had decided New York wasn't the right place for me. I must return home, back to my parents. A part of me really wanted to be back in my parents' bed, be back with my high school best friends, but a part of me had fallen in love with New York. A part of me was still beating, fluttering, dreaming, even with one eye shut, leaping out, looking at the stars, talking to the sky. Three days of playing pirate and then came Sunday night. I knew I'd celebrated my miraculous survival enough. I was broken, lonely, sadder than what I'd ever been, confused, scared about speaking up, scared about staying, scared about stepping outside of my flat. I was just really scared of everything. In my early days in New York, I'd often find myself in Morningside Park. It was close to my apartment, it was quiet. I just went and sat there and looked at the stars. I wore my big, big gray sweatshirt this Sunday night. Got into my red big, red cleats for the golden swoosh, swoosh. With my one functional arm, two barely functional legs, with my broken face, I hobbled my way to Morningside Park. I lay on the basketball court, sitting on a bench with a broken body would be too painful. Tears streamed down my cheeks. I checked my broken eye to see if the ducts were still intact. Thankfully, they were. I cried from both my eyes this time. First a little softly, in whimpers, but soon it turned into an ugly, loud howl. As if my intestines had given way, split open to release this loud howl. I sobered down a little while after, must have been 15 or 20 minutes. I looked to the right towards my broken side and found the tall boy from from the Harlem gang lying by me. He asked me, did your man hit you? I shrugged. I said, I don't know. I was just so drunk, I don't remember who it was what it was, I don't know what happened. He pulled his sleeve and a sweatshirt up. He showed me his arm. It had horizontal scars all the way up his inner arm. He said, I've these on my other arm also. Would you like to see those? My legs also. My chest D, that's another story. I use those that for drugs. I was 21, naive, unexposed to this side of life. I'd never seen something like this. Never something like this before. He told me When my father hits my mother, he does that quite often. I try to stop him. He threatens to rape me, kill me. I tell him I'd rather die myself than let that cunt kill me. I've tried for years to kill myself. I just don't die. I just never die. We lay silently for a few moments under the star that night. He then stood up, he gave me his hand let me teach you how you just need one hand, just one arm to shoot a basketball. It's really easy, I promise you. I'll teach you how to put this one arm to some good use.
0: Thank you so much for that, Dee. It was wonderful. I hope we'll hear more from you in the future. And thank you for staying up so late to share it with us. Regards to Mumbai. Now, as you know, 10x9 is always free, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We're really thankful to everyone has donated. And also everyone who joined us for our fundraiser recently, when Podrick presented some of his poetry and stories. Some of it is on our YouTube channel, but not this. Here's one of Podrick's shorter stories told during the evening.
3: A few years ago, Paul and I, a bunch of years ago now, summer of 2014, Paul and I were on a holiday in Scotland and we'd driven across taking the ferry and then... We had a lovely holiday, beautiful, such a gorgeous place and lovely trips around. It's old castles and cooked nice food and lovely things. And um, we got back and um, at that stage. So Paul dropped me off at my place and drove over the hill four miles to his place. And um, I decided to write a very, very amorous text to Paul and um, possibly quite suggestive as well amidst all the amorousness. So I wrote this Checked that there weren't any spelling mistakes because they don't like spelling mistakes. And then I sent the text um, to my father instead of sending it to Paul. So um, needless to say, that caused something that resembled a minor heart attack, having sent an erotically, er- erotically amorous text to my poor father. And um, I didn't know what to do. So I phoned Paul, <laughs> told him what I'd done. And he said, what was the text? So I sent it to him and he's like, oh, my God, you're an idiot. And um, then I decided that I was going to phone somebody else for empathy. So I've got three sisters and two brothers. I'm number three. And I decided, oh, I'll phone number four, Kira, And um, that line from Pride and Prejudice, let us pour into the wounded bosoms of each other, the balm of sisterly consolation. And anyway, I phoned her and I told her what happened. And um, or I texted her and told her what happened and said, can we talk because I'm falling apart? And she said, I'm going to phone you. So she phoned me and I realized that she was up in Dublin from Cork with her five best friends. They'd all left husbands and children and jobs behind and were off having a magnificent weekend together. And um Kira had told all of them she'd shown them all the the text message I'd sent including the copy the screenshot of the the text that I'd sent to Paul but really to my father. And um, she passed the phone around to all of her friends, all of whom I know. And they just laughed at me and I was kind of falling apart. And an hour later, she phoned back and said, we're still laughing at you. Um, and dad said nothing, um, absolutely nothing. And I was mortified. So I sent dad a text and said, um, obviously, that wasn't for you. Um, hope you're well. And um, I still heard nothing from him until the next day. And he wrote back and said, It was an unusual text message, all right, Podrick. I hope you're well. Love, Dad. So anyway.
0: (laughs) You shouldn't be allowed out. And that is all from this podcast, Almost. Don't go just yet. We have a small bonus in a moment. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed and published by Paul Doran. So I'm to blame for it all. I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, here's a poem from Podrick to see us out. Bye bye.
3: Here's a love poem for Paul called Licorice and Sea Salt. I bought the scarf and wrapped it round my neck. Soft wool, autumn speckle, made me look like me. He took it from me, closed his eyes and smelt it. Said it smelt of me, all licorice and sea salt. I still shut. he held it close, inhaled a little deeper wrapped it warm around him, smiled. Thank you very much, everybody, for the kindness of your attention. I'm so glad for you to be here and to spend this time with you. Thank you for all your goodness and generosity and support for 10 by 9 I'm going to finish this now. So I'm going to try to read all your lovely comments too. I'm so moved by your time. Thank you so much.